food lovers out there. You're listening to On the Menu with Anne and Peter Haig, and we're going to start our discussion this morning um, talking to the author, Corey Mintz, about his uh, landmark book that everyone's talking about. The Next Supper basically tells us the state of the restaurant industry, what's wrong with it, what's happening, what should be done, and what's coming next. Let's listen to Corey Mintz. We're going to be talking to Corey Minsk. I almost scooped that one up, Corey. Um, And your book is generating an awful lot of discussion. It's called The Next Supper, and with a very important subtitle called The End of Restaurants as We Knew Them and What Comes After. I mean, that's that's, (laughs) that is some title, right? We, we, it is. we should know one. Uh, we should know one other thing, sweetheart. Before before we get too carried away, I think Corey is our very first guest from Winnipeg, Manitoba, or Saskatchewan. Oh, really? I broke it? the Winnipeg seal because you, you had a, a hard and fast rule. You were uh, you had no you were refusing to have people from Winnipeg for a long time, and I think you had to. There was some sort of <laughs> civil suit against you. Uh, some human rights complaint, and finally you had to let people from. Well, good news is I'm from Toronto, not from Winnipeg. I live in Winnipeg. Technically, yeah, I could we used to cover the Toronto Food Festival, and um, I, I've never seen such a diverse city as Toronto. I love it. It is. It's an amazing place, and when I speak with people. Uh, you know, when I was reporting the book, I would speak to with people in, in Boston and particularly in San Francisco who would tell me that Toronto was still kind of envious for the the diversity of its food scene. And because, you know, it's 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 such a it's such a lo- uh, uh, a nexus of immigration and, and so oh, many yes. people start uh, different food businesses. It's really amazing what you can find to eat in that city. Now, you have a variety in your background of, of food experiences. Um, you've, you've actually worked in restaurants. Um, you've actually worked both front and years. back of the house. Hmm? Well, to be fair, I was, I was a cook. For, I, I, when I went to cooking school, uh, I was a cook for many years I, 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 in all sorts of restaurants. I was even running a small restaurant at one point. As far as front of house experience, I was a server for, I think, a few months uh, in, in an Iranian in an Iranian restaurant before I went to cook school, and I was terrible at it. But at least I have had the experience of taking orders and, and bringing food to the table and wondering whether people were going to leave a tip. Right. Well, you you go into that in detail, um, and and I I really relate to you because um, I mean I've had all these experiences too from being um, a, a restaurateur, an owner of a restaurant in Philadelphia. Um, and do and all my cooking experiences, and also to be a restaurant critic. So your comments about the the whole scene, exactly at the period of time when I was doing all of this, really rang a bell with me. And I mean, I just I was so immersed in this book. Um, you, you go That's through. That's a very nice compliment. Well, I mean, I, you know, it's. it's I'm so close to it. I'm unless so it close a, to it. Unless you're saying it was a. Uh, sorry about that. I got. Sorry, I have to turn off my timer. Okay. Are you still with me? Yeah, I'm here. Sorry about that. I, okay. I meant to say, unless um, I was bringing up bad memories, 
of uh, of running a restaurant. Uh huh. Well, I mean, the the nightmare people glamorize it, which you mentioned actually being a restaurateur, working in a restaurant, uh, and and some pretty awful things transpire in restaurants. Mm-hmm. Um, and but you're writing about a, a period in our culture where I'm, I don't know how you can determine what's going to turn out. You, you do this systematically by looking at the, um, the, the scene that we're past now, the restaurant scene, doing the history of it, which is very helpful. Because I don't know why uh, I'm back now. The audio seems fine. Can you hear me? Yes, that's fine. If you, if you Where did up, I end I up? What was the last thing you heard from me? Uh, you had, were just at the tip of, uh, of asking a question. Uh-huh. Go ahead, ask a question. All right, well, I said, how are you going to know what's coming next? Because everything's in a state of flux, and the, the restaurant scene keeps changing, actually, on a day-to-day basis. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and particularly I mean, is at the moment that we're talking right now, right? It's just between uh, uh, Christmas and New Year's. And yeah. uh, at least everywhere that I've been watching, we, we saw um, the early chatter in early November was restaurant workers talking about, uh, what do you think? Are you seeing reservations cancel as, as Omicron talk uh, mm-hmm. ramps up and you know leading up to Christmas and, and indeed people canceling plans, um, restaurants in various places, Closing down voluntarily because, yet again, wherever you are, your state, your province, whatever country you're in, uh, politicians not wanting to mandate closures and take responsibility for it. Um, and in general, like, the, the the industry is still in the blender on pulse. It has not yep. stopped being whisked around. Um, yeah, I love and, that, uh, that on pulse. That's exactly what I think. <laughs> I mean, it's just perfect well, the, that... Yeah, because, you know, you can, you know, when you use the food processor or the blender, you can sort of uh, turn it on and set it to high and say, well, I'm not going to stop until my smoothie is completely emulsified. Or you do that thing where you just keep mixing it up again and again, and the ingredients are never sure, like, are we going to be spun around and chopped to bits, like, for another five minutes, or is this going to end? I don't know. And and that's how workers and and owners feel right now, right? Because they've just had so many stops. Oh, sure. Various levels of of government support to, to prevent them from insolvency. Um, so, you know, I, it, while yeah. writing the book, I had to work against the impulse to try to predict what was going to happen next because you know, we can't do that on a day-to-day basis. I certainly couldn't do that with the timeline of a book where you kind of do have to close at a certain point and stop editing and know that it's going to be three to six months before it gets into people's hands. Um, right. Fortunately, I was writing about issues that were um, systemic and generational before the pandemic, and the pandemic just made it clear how uh, harsh these problems were. They made it apparent to the public, so it was less an issue of trying to stay up to date and predict the future so much as remind people, all the stuff that you're bothered by now, this has been the case for decades in the restaurant yeah. industry, and, and people are only now saying, Maybe things should change. Maybe things have to change. Uh-huh. Yeah, but this is true, and that's how you approach this book. Uh, from your experiences uh, with dining scenes, restaurants, eating, um, 
culture from your perspective, you sorted through and plotted out what the issues that were wrong that have to change. Do you want to talk about that for a bit? Sure. I mean, my uh, my background, as you mentioned, is uh, in cooking, and then I became a restaurant critic and a, and a food columnist, and I've done all sorts of things in the food sphere before starting to focus more on labor in restaurants, and then a variety of issues uh, that are that are problematic associated to our our food industry. And this started for me about five or six years ago, um, and it probably began with just this core paradox of the nicer the restaurant, the less the cooks are paid. And yes, this that, was something that's true. I had wanted, I'd always wanted to write about since my first day as a restaurant critic uh, slash writer, and I didn't really have the experience to do the reporting to prove that. And I had bosses who didn't really believe what I was telling them, um, mm-hmm. maybe because there was a generational difference between them and uh, us, and, and maybe because I didn't have the experience, as I say, to do the proper reporting. But once I did, I couldn't stop focusing on those things. And, and, and again, they are, not to sound like a conspiracy theorist, but they are all related. You know, cooks are underpaid because of the tipping system, which, you know, pre-allocates 20% of a restaurant's revenue to one half of the worker group. And not that everyone, yeah. not that they don't deserve to be compensated. It's just that if you overcompensate one group, then you have to undercompensate the other group. So, you know, there's there's been that, dynamic that's been in play for uh, the most, the better part of a century. Um, and it's just starting to change now, which is fascinating. Um, you know, through no, nothing that I could have predicted, but because the, um, because the pandemic shook so much up, as, as we said, you know, one thing, for example, was that so many restaurants immediately had to switch to takeout and delivery. And because of that, you know, if they wanted to hold on to their front of house people, they put them to work packing up boxes. So if they were bringing in tips, it made no sense to say these tips only go to one group of workers. You're all doing, you're all actually working as a team now. There's no mm-hmm. perception from the diner that one group deserves it versus the other. So we started to see, or at least I've started to see, a tip division that is not equalized, but uh, been divided in a more fair uh, ratio recently, you know, yeah, I mean, the old we, 95 the, 5 split has turned into a sort of a 70 30 60 40 split. Now, we, we managed to resist, the Americans managed to resist, and I think Canadians did they or didn't they manage to resist the, the European style of just adding on um, a, a tip <clears> fee, <throat> calling it the water napkins or whatever you, <laughs> as they so call it. Oh, the Canadian tip culture is exactly the same as the states. It's a it's That's an expected, mandatory, obligatory twenty percent. It's not optional. Many diners still love to carry the the perception, the self perception that they are there yeah. to make an adjudication on how well someone's performing their job and then you know compensate them appropriately. But I think this the, the, the stats show from 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 Dr. Lynn at Cornell, uh, most people. They either tip 15, 18, 20, whatever it is, people in the service industry who, who tip 25%, they tend to tip that almost all the time when they go out with very mm-hmm. little uh, aberration. And it's not, you know, it's not actually a reflection of how well people are doing their jobs. And there hasn't been much transparency, although there's, again, another place there's movement. I spoke with a restaurateur last week, and she said, 
And it's something I advocate for the book, uh, and something I advocate for in the book, and I'm surprised to see it happening. She said, I'm having diners come up to me in the restaurant and ask me about how tips are divided, which is something that never happened. Nobody ever did. Uh, three or four years ago. And, you know, people have become aware of some of the inequities. You know, this is, I think, to answer your actual question from a couple of minutes ago, this is on top of the, you know, the exorbitant take rates from the third-party delivery apps, right? Yeah, that's, that's, of course, that was a phenomenon once we went into shutdown from the pandemic with the third-party delivery people, right? And And it's another issue that was still somewhat not underground, but at least it wasn't mainstream. You know, I, I found that when I was writing, interviewing, and talking about it, I, would, I was perpetually finding people shocked and surprised by the dynamic that, you know, these delivery companies take percentages that are higher in commissions than the average profit margin of a restaurant, and then the pandemic shifted things, and that's become a much more mainstream conversation. People know that, and yet, you know, not everyone does. I read a review of this book, uh, my book, from this woman who said that mid-pandemic, she was still <laughs> ordering from delivery companies as much as three times a day some days, um, but but literally every day of the week, unaware uh, of their relationship with, with restaurateurs. So, you know, that's something that's, again, it's gradual and it's it's going to become, I think, the one thing I'll make a prediction about is that that will become a legal battle. Uh, wherever you live in North America, at least for now, it happened in California. That and, and the owner's take on things. Uh, if you remember some of the, the exposés on the owner's restaurant tour, it's taken huge cuts. Sorry, uh, the owners of restaurants taking huge cuts from? Tip, pool, tip pools. Right, which it, it, now to clarify, in the States, the owner's not allowed to take uh, from the tips or to compensate management, right? Right. But but there have been all these lawsuits now. Yeah, it did, but didn't spread. stop them from doing it, though. Right. It happens. There are lawsuits. There's occasional... Wasn't there a class action against um, Babo or at least some... Yes, yes. yes. One of the, uh, That's exactly uh, who I was thinking of. <laughs> uh, and per se, I think... Um, yeah, I mean, the the... The, the the explanation from um, Saru Jayaraman, uh, who's, who's a big uh, restaurant worker advocate, was you know the the government enforcement of tip division is just like it's rife with loopholes. It's easy to exploit and uh, get away with non-compliance, which is not surprising because the tip system is inherently designed to sort of keep cover money out of the hands of the government. You know, when it back yeah. when I remember years ago I asked servers just just offhand, I wasn't even doing it for a story, but I just started asking servers, what do you declare on your taxes, like in terms of what you actually take <laughs> in? And, and and the answers I got again and again were between ten and fifteen percent of what I actually make unless I'm looking to buy a house in the next few years, in which case I need to start establishing the legitimacy of my income. Right, um, like, because like I need, Trump uh, his property. Yeah. Right. I, 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 I'm going to need a mortgage, so I need to show that, you know, so for uh-huh. years I'll pretend that I make 25 grand a year, and then all of a sudden, actually, I make 75 to 80 grand a year, uh, which is why I qualify for a mortgage. Um, yeah. Obviously, that's starting to change in recent years, and, and with that goes, hey, to be fair, if they, whether it's the whether it's them declaring their tips 
or the owner who eliminates tips, ultimately it means they have to pay taxes on that. Well, you know, when they um, in the states when they came out with the PPE um, stuff, they were giving the the um, money to people based on um, their income tax records, and um, and a lot of people had to come forth and say that they couldn't qualify because they had paid taxes on their income for three or four years, including my housekeeper. <laughs> so they never got any of that money. It was, I mean, it was a very strange part of the, the conversation that was hard to get into in a public space because I don't want to speak. I'm not trying to uh, throw anybody under the bus or get people in trouble. But, of course, yeah, if it's based on your reported income and people are hiding their income, then how can the government – what exactly. does the government have to base, to base the support on, you know? <laughs> it, it, it cuts yeah, now, both ways. Yeah, the, um, of course, you, know, you and I shared the experience of being um, a restaurant critic, and, and um, yes. that's a, a huge challenge. I mean, I, you talk about celebrity chefs, which we have to go into in a little bit, but um, mm-hmm. the, the era of celebrity restaurant critics, always fascinated me because I was trapped in one of those situations where I was supposed to be anonymous. Um, Mm -hmm. But, yeah, but um, I also was supposed to be a tool for public relations. Mm -hmm. So so there was no way you were going to do both. But it just put me in the bind. And what years were you a a restaurant critic? Um, Ninety... One to two thousand and five. Right, because that's right. That's right around the time that Ruth Reichel's uh, Garlic and Sapphire uh, memoir was published, which certainly right. was another elevation of the role of the restaurant critic in terms of the public perception, and very much from the perception of newspaper publishers and editors who all loved that book and said, we should be promoting our restaurant critic because they're yes. a tastemaker and they're, they, they should be as famous as the mayor of you know, whatever city you're in, except we can't show, we well, can't show their face. Well, it, 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 it was just tricky. People just sort of ignored the fact that I was supposed to be anonymous, but they would actually, um, re- um, not raffle, uh, auction me off. Um, you pay so much money on the money, of course, you? goes to, uh, to have dinner with me. Yeah. yeah. But, and I don't know how many, you know, you talk about celebrity chefs, but what about the celebrity you just mentioned, Ruth Reichel? Um, Ruth Reichel. Um, she, uh, Ruth, I mean, I don't know how many people um, asked me why I couldn't write more like Gail Green, for example. So this whole mm-hmm. issue of the celebrity food critic restaurant critic. That's another thing that I thought screwed up restaurants. Sweetheart, you remember my... Did you find there was... Oh, sorry, I can't... uh, Peter. No, no, go ahead. Go ahead. ahead. I was going to ask, did did you find that there was pressure to write these sort of memorable, mean reviews? I have an advantage in resisting that which is that I wrote for a monthly, so I only had to uh, to do, um, not counting all the features I had to write, but I only had to do full restaurant reviews 12 months 
of the, of the year, plus all the other right. things like the top 25 or, you know, that kind of thing, the list, whatnot, and another food-related subject. So that, I mean, I didn't, I had a good excuse for not covering really bad restaurants, so I just didn't do. I didn't review them. Yeah, you didn't have the space at the time. No, no. Well, and, and people got mad about that. The restaurant tours would get mad if you didn't do that. Review them. Yes, everybody and wants I, attention until you give them negative attention, in which case they exactly. say, "Oh, you, nobody wants yeah. you." No, I mean I had a file on restaurant tours that threatened my life. Oh, wow. Well done. I know. Well, which is another thing you talk about is that the power, uh, our restaurant scene is so entirely different now, the power of the restaurant critic is diffused and it's not as strong um, because of the characters aren't there and because of all these Yelp people and things like that. And it's a totally different scene. That, and I want you to talk also about this celebrity chef thing because I found that really that was, I didn't like having lived through that whole episode with the celebrity superstar chefs, because we also covered, covered all these um, international awards programs and stuff. Address a little bit like that from your point of view and, and the, the book's point of view. The celebrity chefs and, and pressures on critics. Well, I was a critic from what was it, like 2007 to 2009, so a relatively short tenure. And I, you know, I came in from having been a cook. They sort of, the newspaper took a chance on me, uh, filling in for their restaurant critic who was on maternity leave. And a unionized Canadian newspaper meant she was taking a full year maternity leave. Um, so I had a, I had a good run at it, but that was during I think a pretty uh, pivotal, pivotal uh, change, period of change for, for the restaurant industry in the sense that it was the beginning of that sort of farm-to-table, nose-to-tail uh, movement. Um, it was uh, a few years into, I think, the elevation of the chefs are the new rock stars conversation and sort of oh, yeah. putting chefs and their restaurants at the center of our not – maybe not the center of our culture, but saying like, hey, you know, we have movies – TV, music, and we write constantly in these profiles of these people and, and take their picture and tell everybody how, you know, we should pay attention to them. Like, let's put restaurants and chefs in there. And then it was also just at the beginning, the precipice, really, of the global recession, which really changed everything, not to the same degree that the pandemic has, but um, changed the way the restaurants operated in, the, in a way that I had a front seat for. So... I was kind of new to writing in the sense that I'd just come from the kitchen where I was making less than minimum wage. And then suddenly I had a, a, a nice middle-class job with a lot of uh, power and authority to it. Um, and so I, I was at first kind of cowed by the status of these people who, you know, a year earlier had been my bosses um, <laughs> and were now people I was, I was writing about. But over the course of, I think a few years following that global recession, I could see how, you know, there was that um, that move away from fine dining, mostly because the money wasn't there, because all the corporate lunches and expense accounts had evaporated. So, yeah. you know, all the chefs who were 
trying to become, you know, get the promoted to executive chef of this 200 seat luxury restaurant realized, well, the restaurant's scaling back. They're not going to open their second restaurant next year. Like they promised, whatever, you know, they all went and opened their own 30 seat places and served what they wanted. And it was, it was good for a couple of years because all of a sudden they were taking their skill and level of precision and presenting in the place without the expensive dining rooms, without the million dollar renovation and saying, you can have this meal for, you know, 30 to $40. And it was, it was pretty amazing. But, you know, the two things that flowed from that was their exacting standards and their uh, mechanisms of wage theft. That's the only way to produce that fancy food, which is basically, I got to figure out a way to manipulate my employees to work uh, for more hours than I'm paying them or to work for a, you know, salary that equates to less than minimum wage, whatever the thing is, because this food requires so much effort to make mm-hmm. it so good. Because I insist on making everything by hand. Um, and at the same time, the, the prices came back and the luxury came back. And once the economy, you know, made a full return, so did, you know, all those restaurants that were saying, in 2009 to 11 saying, you know what, we don't, we don't need tablecloths. We don't need reservations. We don't need the fancy wine list. You know, they all, they, they all gravitated back towards that. And that average check size rose. And the only thing that didn't return to that sort of move to the, to the center of gravity was the wages of the cooks. You know, those stayed those uh-huh. stayed at, uh, at, uh, the pre pandemic or the pre, um, recession levels. And, uh, and what happened, at least from my perspective, is that I think a generation of young people who were lured by uh, unintentionally by food television, I can't tell you how many oh, yeah. you know, young restaurants I've read. Right. Where they they say, all want to have all these. I saw it on um, TV. I, yeah, I wanted to be a they, chef they don't want to be a, a cook or a chef. They want to be a TV personality. I heard that all yeah, the time. Well, the, and they, 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 you know, so many people came to it from sort of saying like, I want to join the army, but I want to go immediately from private to general. I'm not interested yeah. in the sergeant, the captain, <laughs> nothing in between. And from my perspective, what happened is you had a lot of middle class young people enter the field and within five years realize that these are not middle class jobs. These are working class jobs yeah. <laughs> and not good working class jobs, not, not a Detroit car factory in the 60s job. Um, but more like a meatpacking uh, uh, plant in Chicago in the 1910s, working class job, you know, with no safety and no benefits and really crappy wages. And that's when you that's why we started to see the actual beginnings of an exodus of labor from the restaurant industry around 2015. That's when I started to hear these same chefs who everyone was writing about. They're so great. They're so brilliant. They're opening a restaurant in Abu Dhabi. They kept telling me, Corey, I can't find people. Do you know any people? And oh, yeah. this kept growing and growing until last spring when all of a sudden economists and pundits were shocked, shocked at a labor shortage in the restaurant industry, and they couldn't understand why. Yeah, right. So that brings us to another issue is that aside from the economics of everything, aside from the recession, aside from um, the, uh, the closures and, and the uncertainty, um, there are all these mental health issues and physical demands of these people that were all romanticized and glamorized, and now they're, they're actually, they had time to look at it 
and decide, no, no, mm-hmm. I, I'm not going there. I don't want to do that anymore. And give us your yeah. thoughts on that. Well, I, I think uh, mental health and self-perception is, is a big part and it needs to be a big part of that conversation because pre-pandemic you've got, I mean, let's let's separate front of house and back of house a little bit. In the kitchen, there's this self-mythologizing around the physical and mental endurance, you know, oh, I worked oh, yeah, yeah, hours yeah. today and I burned my arm and rather than say, this is why I need a day off or this is why I deserve more money, it's shared as a badge of honor, right, with your coworkers. Look at how, and oh, and I had a fever of 105 degrees and, it, you know, everyone pats this person on the back, wow, you're a real soldier. And the front of house person does the same thing. They say, this, this customer made a sexual advance on me, this, you know, these people were rude to me and all this. Uh, and, uh, I, I, I hate, I hate all these people, but at the end of the day, I've got $500 in cash and mm-hmm. I'm going to, you know, when I, when I end my shift at two, between two and 3 AM, I'm going to have a few drinks before heading home, yeah. you know, going to sleep at, 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 at 4 AM. And so many of these people had a break from that physically, mentally for the first time in, I, I know for a lot of people, uh, many years. Somebody said to me, a restaurant, I was talking to a restaurateur the other day who was talking about wages, and she said, no cook in all of history has ever taken a vacation. They only take vacations between jobs, right? <laughs> this is, yeah, that's the way of putting it. Yeah. Right? Yeah, yeah, like you work somewhere for two years, and then before you start your next grueling job, you take whatever you have saved and you go to Japan or Spain or whatever it is you want to go. It's true. I've never heard of a cook taking two weeks off to go travel because they can't afford it. And also because they don't want to miss anything, right? They don't want to miss out on the the promotion to the next station because they're not seen as the hardest working person in the kitchen. But, uh, you know, it takes its, it takes its toll, all of that stuff. And as uh, I talked to Hassel Aviles, for the book, and she runs an organization called Not Nine to Five that focuses on mental health and hospitality. And, you know, she really hammers home this idea that anyone who's been working in a restaurant for full time for at least three years has some form of PTSD. And to yeah. treat that with alcohol is really not a great idea. <laughs> it's very normal. Or drugs. I mean, let's get you know, you think after uh, Tony Bourdain, everybody would be alert to the fact that the mental health is not so hot. Sure. Uh, but, but our cat you know, Kinnison, we've interviewed her about the um, Chefs with Issues organization she founded. Uh, and, I mean, suicide rates are like through the roof. Yeah. Well, I mean, I love, I love Kitchen Confidential like everyone else, or at least it made an impression on me like everybody yeah. else. But, you know, to, it, it's... It's, it, that book is to cooks what Scarface is to drug dealers in terms of everyone seems to have seen or read it and nobody remembers the ending. You know, people forget. <laughs> Scarface, spoiler alert, Scarface dies in a pile of excess. You know, Anthony Bourdain uh, gets sober. He, at least in, in that book, you know, he, he's an addict who realizes that this type of life is unsustainable and he quits, he quits uh, uh, heroin. Um, people kind of take what they want from that, but even without the worst excesses, because I I never worked in a kitchen where people were doing cocaine or heroin, but even in the nice places I worked at the end of the shift, somebody gives you a beer and not on Friday or Saturday, every day you drink a beer and there's nothing wrong with people having a beer at the end of the day, right? I'm not here to, to judge people. I love having a drink at the end of my work day, but the idea that everyone in a workplace 
as an alcoholic beverage at the end of every shift is really cuckoo bananas when you think of it in the context of um, a normal workplace. Like just imagine people working in an office. They get in at nine and at five, you know, five o'clock, or maybe they close them, you know, early at four thirty, and the boss comes around with a tray of beers every day. And they go, oh, "You have to drink beer at that <laughs> while, while you clean up the workplace." By the way, this is, this yeah. is when you consume it. When yeah, you, you, not you when can't the, sit down. Well, you're um, not allowed to rest. Well, no, I mean, it, it's. I would say that with all your experience in restaurants and cooking and so forth, um, and your general cultural awareness, it probably was not so difficult finding out what some of the ills and problems are in the industry across the board. But where does that take us, and how do we get to the next part of, of your book, which is what comes after? Yeah, the what comes after is, is the big matzo ball, isn't it? And, you know, what, what my goal was in the book was because, you know, I, I knew in, in just in the process of de- developing it with, from my editor was, Corey, this book can't be a, long, a laundry list of complaints. That's yeah. not helpful. And it's a bummer to read. So in each chapter, I look for some form of action. Pardon me. Mm. Yeah, run run through a few of them. I mean, the 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 big problems as you see so, them. Um, so you know, right off the bat, let's talk about the third-party delivery apps. I mean, oh, this, yeah, is, right. this is probably the the most the easiest to communicate, the hardest exactly. to do if you're a user of this app. Delete them. Get them off your phone. Boom, we just solved that problem. That won't cost you any money. Is yeah. that going to um, change the face of the industry? No, but this is something, this is the, the, you know, the book drives all the way around the block to find a parking space. You know, we, we get into in the final chapter the idea of you know, the limits of our personal action as ethical consumers versus the kind of change we need at the policy level. But if you go back to the, the decision whether or not to use these apps, you're doing both at the same time because, yes, you're voting with your fork and your dollar, but ultimately these companies have made it clear they are taking their battle to change labor laws uh, and their battle to ensure their profit margin at the expense of restaurants. They're taking it uh, to the policy level, right? They, are, they, they succeeded in California with AB25 in rewriting labor laws in a way that suits them, and they promised that they're going to take this everywhere. Uh, and in California, it was a ballot initiative. So that's a referendum issue. So your consumer awareness actually makes a difference. Uh, you know, that's, that's one area. At the sort of chef-driven restaurant level, it's, I think, more of a personal, with, with uh, making some sort of uh, a personal assessment of how have I viewed restaurants? What, what, what is my relationship with them like? How do I choose where to eat and what's that? based on who is um, who is paying for that where's the payola behind the scene and nobody has the time to make that investigation but at the very least I start the book by suggesting hey here's a free thing because I don't want to make everybody work for their dinner here's a free thing to do get rid of the idea that the customer is always right you know yeah, it won't cost you anything but make some uh, make some in personal investigation of probably a long-held belief for many of us because we're told again and again the same way that 
restaurant workers are told the customer is always right, or people in retail, or restaurant workers are told if you've got time to lean, you've got time to clean. It may sound silly, but you hear it so many times. It becomes true. It's not true that the customer is always right. That would, I mean, talk to a lawyer. What a grand sweeping legal precedent if one, if one group in a debate was always right. Uh, customers um, are entitled to their opinions and for asking things to be done a certain way. And if they ask nicely, then why shouldn't we try to make that happen for them? But um, paying or being able to pay money for dinner should not entitle anyone to abuse staff, to ask for things that aren't available, to prioritize themselves over other customers or the safety of workers. So I think just uh, reconsidering, uh, that's what I mean by if we can reconsider our relationship to restaurants, we'll be, de- we'll be better diners. Um, I think well, now most of the, the restaurants opening up um, in this convi- very confusing time um, are what you call immigrant restaurants. Is mm-hmm. that going to change the culture? I, it's hard to tell in that area. I mean, that's, uh, you know, as I, as I said at the top, I moved to a new city, and it's been part of the big challenge um, after I found, you know, where do I get my bread? Where do I get my meat? Um, in a new place where I used to sort of be on a first-name basis with everybody. After that, it was like, where do I find Sri Lankan food? Mm-hmm. Um, where's really good Vietnamese food? And one of the things we saw early in the pandemic was a big sort of um, commercial real estate musical chairs in which Uh all of a sudden, you know, in the spring of 2020, you had uh, the early days of the pandemic and the early days of various levels of government support, whether it was the PPP loans or subsidies for wages um, or rent, um, and at least in Canada, I can say those those rent subsidies being um, reconsidered after about six months because they weren't working property, properly. But what you saw is a lot of owners who were operating on the slimmest of margins or who were not happy or for a variety of reasons were really on their last legs anyways, um, who, you know, just very quickly said, I'm handing the keys back to the landlord. Like, I'm not going to survive this. I don't want to because it was, you know, everyone – very quickly realized this is going to be a long, hard struggle to survive the pandemic. And so a lot of properties became available. And uh, on some levels, uh, as I mentioned in the book, like there were companies established from uh, executives from corporate fast food chains just to take advantage of that, right, to find, uh, lease, and develop those properties at uh, a steal, right, versus what they would have paid six months previously. But at the same time, I kept hearing stories of smaller, mostly immigrant-based restaurants, first and second generation, who were saying, oh, we have a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to get in on a five-year lease in downtown whereversville. Toronto was the place I was hearing about this most frequently. Um, But at a, a, a fraction uh, often like in some cases half as much as it was previously. So there was a whole sort of wave of entrepreneurial opportunity, which was tremendous um, because, you know, the bigger the city, the more yeah. first-time operators are just priced out of running a restaurant in, in the city proper. It's, you know, commercial real estate is is just so expensive, whatever the large city it is. 
that you live in. From from my perspective, uh, it just became a priority uh, several years before the pandemic to find and support the kind of businesses I believe in, whether that's sort of the kind of restaurants I like, but that um, do a better job of paying yeah. staff and compensating staff. And I've been able to find those kind of places and learned the right kind of questions to ask or who to ask those questions to. And often it's just also recognizing immigrant restaurateurs as a huge economic engine um, of like real job creation, real like wealth creation. Yeah. They're nothing but good for the economy to say, to say nothing of like, this is, this is just something our culture needs a, a broader, a broader culinary palate. So you know, finding, supporting, and celebrating those places is just a huge part of my dining experience these days. Well, Corey Mintz, for your next book, I'd, I'd love for you to address what I see is happening on the other end of this um, immigrant um, restaurant thing, and that is the the re, re-exploring and re-establishing these huge restaurant empires like um, with, um, you know, people... Restaurateurs and chefs owning like ten restaurants, partnering with various other economic enterprises, uh, hotels, um, re- redevelopment, um, that kind of thing, and and that's a whole going to be a whole other chapter that I wish you'd bring your wisdom to. <laughs> I can't wait to get started on another book. I tell you, I really enjoyed writing this, despite the nightmare of the pandemic that changed everything like you said seems like every two exactly. weeks we had a new reality it will never be the same i don't think so and well, yeah and that's my that's my goal is yeah, I, exactly. I don't think the restaurant industry should be returning to the way it was run before and no, I'm just, i mean i, I, I'm, tell you, I was just horrified reading that section on the celebrity chef and their demise because I mean, that was a whole period in my life where uh, i mean it was scary <laughs> Yeah, but that was really an easy scary. prescription, you know, to the to the diner. It's that's an easy one. It will again, it's one that won't cost you anything. Like stop reading chef profiles. Stop going to places because someone told you the chef is great. Yeah. Um, it's just not a great reason. And unless you're hearing about what a great employer they are, what is it that's great about this person? Corey, there's so much more to be said on this subject. You do tend to pick on meaty subjects here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so again, listeners, it's, it's Corey Mintz talking about his book, The Next Supper, The End of Restaurants as We Knew Them, which I will uh, concur with that. Podcasting services for On The Menu Radio are provided by ASP Station, www.aspstation.net. Um, next up, we kind of try to keep you all abreast of what people are thinking and doing in this industry. And uh, it, it's a bit um, offbeat for us, but we have now uh, Jonathan Karp, um, MD, a doctor, who has a product on the market, which he discovered in Japan, and he's going to tell you all about it. His company is called Miracle Noodle, and that is the product. We're going to be talking to Jonathan Karp, MD, Dr. Karp. Welcome to On the Menu. 
Um, you have an unusual uh, product line called Miracle Nouvelle. And we were wondering, like, what what is miraculous about your noodles? Well, what makes them miraculous is <clears throat> that they are 97% water and 3% plant fiber, um, which basically allows you to enjoy noodles. And we also make a rice and ready to eat. And we have the without, rice. Yeah, without you know having to worry about the carbs and the calories. But what additionally makes it miraculous is that it was invented by Buddhist monks um, over a thousand years ago, and has been eaten in Japan as as a health food uh, for for that long. So between you know its appeal to sort of our modern sensibilities and the fact that it has this robust and really fascinating history, you know, just to me made it really miraculous. Now, what do you, what do you actually call it? You mentioned in Japanese, it's well in Japanese it's called shirataki, which means white waterfall. Uh, because the noodles look a little bit like a white waterfall when you hold them in your hands. Um, and we we make that particular product very similar to how the, the Japanese uh, have made it all these years, but we've made it into a lot of different shapes and flavors and put it in ready-to-eat meals and soups um, so that people in the West can enjoy it with the way they expect uh, to have noodles like pasta um, and fettuccine and, and things like that. Now tell us about your aha moments when you were in Japan. Well, I, I'm a friend of mine, I was visiting a friend of mine, and she took me to a Buddhist vegetarian restaurant outside the city of Kyoto. It's a really remarkable place, just like you would imagine, sort of uh, outside this this beautiful city. Um, really simplistic design and, and incredible dishes. And my friends knew that, that I was not into eating white flour and, and high starch foods, but yet they gave me this bowl of noodles. And, and when they told me the, the, you know, the benefits of it and what it was, you know, that was really the aha moment because I've had so many patients since I do a lot of lifestyle medicine who have really had trouble giving up the, the comfort food experience of, of eating noodles, rice, and, and pasta. And I, I sort of felt like this would be a really great transitional food, what I thought would be a food that people could eat while they're learning to eat healthier. But I realized once I started to, to sell it that people really liked it as an alternative in and of itself, that they you know didn't feel the need to go back to, to high-starch noodles and rice uh, after using it, after eating it and enjoying it. Well, how did you figure out how to make it? Well, we partnered with, with companies that were making it for, you know, local Japanese markets. And um, so we, we weren't, we were really partnering with people who, who were making it already. Uh, what we did was, was introduce it really more to, to people through making some modifications with the product so that it would appeal more to, to Western sensibility. Um, the, yeah, I mean, I, I just I try to figure out what kind of um, bravery it required for, for you with a totally different background to suddenly start producing a food product. <laughs> but you're really <laughs> distributing it, right? Well, we, you know, customized it uh, according to how I felt people would like it. Uh, it was a bit of a shift, obviously, from, from what I was doing, but I... I'd always started businesses all along. Um, I've always had an interest in in natural health and and getting the word out about natural health. And 
it although it sounds like it was a big departure, it actually felt fairly natural with given given how I was sort of communicating with people um, and my activities in terms of of natural health. Now, did you have some partners in this in the venture? Or? No. Um, well, my family. You know, as, once we started to to start, you know, we started to get some press, and we got onto like Dr. Oz and Rachel Ray and a bunch of um, you know cookbooks. Doctor, uh, chef chefs were putting us in their cookbooks. Then uh, at that point, I brought my family on board, and and uh, my sisters and my parents uh, started to help. Interesting. Um, well, you, of course, you're, you're right at the right moment in, um, in the trend um, for people's interest in in healthier lifestyles and um, and and also more veggie-based foods. I mean, that's right on trend. Um, and then you have a lot right. of yeah. I mean, it's the, it's the moment for it. <laughs> Yeah, and also you hit one other thing, which is called convenience. I mean, what's the format you use in in um, presenting it? The, the, well, we, you know, the original product as it is in Japan requires a little bit of prep. It has, it has, you know, it has to be um, prepared in a certain way. So we've been able to make it a lot more convenient by putting it into some ready-to-eat meals. Um, with Asian flavors uh, like Thai, Thai flavors like Pad Thai and Tom Yum yeah. and uh, Japanese Thai curry. Pad Thai. Um, it was, I mean, the Pad Thai was rather um, um, on the mild side compared to what most people view as Pad Thai, right? Yes, correct. It's more, I would say, more Americanized Pad Thai, yes. So but you've the toned down some of the, you've toned yeah. down some of the flavor profiles. Yeah, um, except for the the tom yum also, but it, it's still spicy. Uh, still has that spicy flavor. Uh huh. Now we we now we met. A fa- a fa- I guess it was a family sweetheart, wasn't it? Because it was an, an uncle and a, and a niece who were together in a venture with I think either four or five noodle restaurants in London. Uh huh. And one and one of the more remarkable things was that the the young lady who actually welcomed her welcomed us to her version of this restaurant was also a sake sommelier yeah she's a sake ah. sommelier yeah yeah you know i'm a sake sommelier as well actually are you yeah i took uh just first level but i i you know since i was traveling to japan so much i i took a, a class um, in San Francisco um, many years ago to to just cultivate a better appreciation because I was enjoying sake while I was traveling. I was Japan. amazed. I didn't realize there were that many varieties of it or that many different um, approaches to it, but she matched. It's so amazing. Oh, she matched the, a different sake to every course we had. Now, Wonderful. What, 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 what was also interesting is her her particular version of, of Japanese noodles. I think it was pork-based, wasn't it, sweetheart? And, it was pork-based, and, and, and it took hours and longer to make cooked, it. Yeah, they cooked the, uh, the, the broth for like 48 hours or something like that. Interesting. Well, that, that might have had a noodle very similar to, to ours because there's a couple dishes in Japanese uh, cuisine, um, like sukiyaki, which is a big, big... Um, 
a big stew, you know, um, yeah. that that you can get, and also oden, which is right, uh, not kind of a winter stew that you can even get at like a Seven Eleven in Japan. They they have it, and it has either chunks of of the same product called konyaku, like sliced, or or the noodles themselves. So that might have very well been something similar. Well, you know, um, it, it's <laughs> this whole vegetable based vegetable for uh, forward the vegetable based then reached a, a new high in my mind when I realized that the impossible meat people just produced a vegetarian a vegan um pork <laughs> huh. and it, it, it got a kosher designation <laughs> <laughs> Is that right? <laughs> There's something, something wrong with that. I mean, it's sort of like people who drink fake beer. I mean, there's just something wrong with it. Yeah. Jonathan, you, yeah. You, you, made, you made the connection that the, the business that started off as impossible was actually impossible meat. Which it's I, which really I guess something. Which wouldn't, oh. wouldn't go down with your client base very well. <laughs> <laughs> so, well, now... Give us a range of of the products that you sell. Do you, know, you have a long list of of, of uh, styles and dishes, or what? Yeah, well, we started with a traditional product as it was as it was as it's served in Japan, um, and then we moved to the ready to eat meals, um, pre packed with sauce, um, and then uh, we got into soups. So we have a couple of bone broth noodle soups. Uh, as well as some functional soups that are nutrient-dense. Um, and now we have some keto-flavored meals as well. And really? we made a we made an improvement on the actual basic noodle. Uh, we've been able to sort of pre-rinse it and get it into a ready-to-eat format, so it requires very little preparation. Yeah, and I mean, basically, you, you open the package and stick it in the microwave for two minutes, right? Yeah, I mean, we recommend a, like a quick rinse, um, but yeah, essentially, you know, the, the, in order to get the best pasta noodle-like texture is to make sure that you cook it in the sauce. You know, in different other noodles, you can sort of pour pour sauce on top, but in this case, you want it, you want it so that the noodles soak up the flavor. So the best thing to do is to is to cook it in the sauce or in the soup and let it sit in there for a good five or ten minutes while while it's cooking. Oh, okay. Um, now, uh, how, your target base, you probably <laughs> you have a, a lot of um, uh, uh, patients that would probably welcome this too, huh? How did you Definitely. decide to market it? Well, I had, I had some experience, um, you know, working online and, and helping some of my friends who were, doing some online stuff. So I sort of knew how to get a website up pretty quickly. Um, and initially, you know, I was targeting people health-wise, certainly uh, either people who, people with uh, who pre-diabetes or, or diabetes, uh, people who are, you know, just trying to eat healthier were really the, the two first communities that, that I went after. Yeah, well, I mean, the market gets expanded every day. <laughs> I mean, I I sort of saw this coming because the, the the fancy food show, which we used to cover in person at the time, um, the labels kept getting longer, and it wasn't because of additional ingredients, because those that the number of ingredients and everything was shrinking. 
but it was uh-huh. all the what I call free from <laughs> yeah. declarations of the packages and yes. all the you know, vegan and gluten free this free and and we're certainly I mean there's a counterbalance to that with people who just want the full glorious especially after the pandemic a food experience. But but there's definitely that whole healthful and wellness side of it, huh? Well, last, yes. last week's program, if you remember, sweetheart, if you can remember that, that far back, we one of our, one of our guests listed herself as free from. Oh yes, right, the Canadian. So, um, so it, was, it wasn't all the nutrition stuff that was in there. Quite the opposite, it was. She, she marketed it because it was free from, and there's a, yeah. apparently there's a whole, there's a whole market there of people who care about nothing except free from. Yeah, well, that's a common use in Europe. This woman told us, although not so much. And now she's Canadian, but not so much in Canada and North America. But um, it's customary in Europe to to have this whole line of free from foods. Mm-hmm. So, um, so what's your strategy? Is this going to turn into anything else, or are you going to venture into something else, or what? Well, we definitely have a lot of uh, new products coming out, especially with um, with some of the rice alternatives that we have. Uh, we also sell a product called Content, which is another Japanese product. What made is it? From, it's called. It's made from seaweed. Um, oh, and it, what's the it, name of it? Content. There's and a very famous Japanese seaweed company that um, supplies a, a chef friend of me, a Mars. Okay. Yeah, I bet it's that one. one. Yeah, I bet it was probably. Constant. Uh, so that, yeah, so that's a good product. Um, it, it just, you, you put it in hot water and it sort of softens into, into noodles, so it works really well for, for like a hot soup and is also. And it's from know, seaweed, you know, right? Yeah, it's from seaweed. Mm-hmm. Well, that's great because it's also seaweed's also sustainable. Yeah, yeah, and you know, we also, given my background, we have some. We have a product, I should say, a service called the Body Mastery Method, which is taking my my teachings about health um, and incorporating it with something called a fasting mimicking diet, which is a, a diet that. Uh, it's a five-day reduced calorie diet that, that mimics the effects of, of a five-day water fast. And many people are aware of how beneficial doing fasting is, but uh, no one really wants to not eat for five days. But uh, some researchers out of uh, USC have proven that uh, you can eat a certain proportion of, of macronutrients over and a low, at a lower calorie rate over five days and get the same benefits. And we pair that with so we people get the five days worth of food, and then we pair that with education and and classes that that I give on on health optimization. Wow, you're as I said, you're really on trend. <laughs> you're very alert to all this going on. I mean, we hear about this all the time. The um, the I'm not sure about the fasting thing, but um, I know people who successfully have done that. I don't think I could, especially since I eat for a living. But <laughs> it wouldn't work very well for me. But um, yeah, <laughs> but um, tell me, do you know what? I can't find out anything really um, about 
what is this Noom thing? They won't tell you, you know, unless you sign up for it. They say it's psychology. Oh, the, the um, Neem or that, Noom. that company? Noom. Noom. N-O-O-M. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes, I have seen that. It's, it's, a, a, it's, it's a behavioral psychology um, portal of some sort. So it's, it's a traditional, as far as I know, I, I, I can't speak. I can't speak to it, honestly, but from what someone told me is that it, it, although it looks like their advertising makes it look like a special diet, um, my understanding is, is that it's a very traditional behavioral psychology. Yeah, I think it is. But I mean, the, the behavioral is probably the toughest part of dieting. <laughs> True. <laughs> so how do they do that? I don't know. I really don't know. I thought maybe you'd know. But. No. Well, okay, so how do we get this now? Let's Let's do that. And we could probably also give the um, uh, the website for it. Do you have recipes and things on the website? I guess you don't need yeah, them. Yeah, thousands. Already cooked. Yeah, thousands. Yeah, well, the website's miraclemoodle.com, um, and we have a store locator on there. You can certainly buy off the website uh, as well as, you know, most online stores. Um, and, you know, I think that, um, you know, we're in a lot of stores. We're probably in around 16,000 stores nationwide so that there will really? be a store near you um, but certainly online is a very convenient way um, and yeah we have thousands of, of recipes and articles and such on how to use how to use all of our and enjoy all of our products at miraclenoodle.com well Jonathan honestly I just I, I keep wanting to ask you and press you to see what's next because you have so many ideas <laughs> thank you you're always thinking huh never standing still no, that's true. <laughs> well, I, mean, I wish you success and continued success. Apparently, the company's grown very quickly, and uh, so and and your other the seaweed company. I mean, that's that's an exciting um, venture. I mean, I'm, I'm, I've been an advent, uh, avid fan of seaweed for a long, long time, and I'm happy that people are finally recognizing its potential. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. It's uh, it's definitely a growing um, it's definitely growing. And you know, years ago, no one would be caught dead eating seaweed. They'd look at you <laughs> like you were crazy. But now, you know, think t- tastes change. People people's uh, appetites for new foods increases every, every year. And so, I think overall, that's a good trend. Right. Well, I think. I mean, we've interviewed some seaweed. Um, farmers or I mean whatever and um, and they're a very interesting lot I must tell you (laughs) there's a lot of of the um, aesthetics of seaweed and a lot of the spiritual uh, things side of seaweed and the the cutting Uh of it and the growing of it and and, the weather the whole thing is very interesting well you're having a good time Jonathan I can tell and thank you for taking the time to talk to us. Sure. You're welcome. Pleasure. Again, listeners, it's miraclenoodle.com. Thank you very much, Doc. Another wrap for us, uh, Rabideau. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. So here we are until... He's, he's a funny one with me. on the microphone today, and I have to say she's doing a wonderful job. And, sweetheart, yeah. lo- I love you until next week. Bye-bye.